Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Paul Mackenzie Jones about his new biography of the Native American activist Clyde Warrior, entitled Clyde Warrior, Tradition, Community, and Red Power. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Yes, certainly. Um, Well, originally, um, I was born and raised in, in Liverpool, England. And I came over to the States in 2005 for graduate school. And um, I have been here ever since. I got my PhD at the University of Oklahoma, and now I am in Montana uh, as an assistant professor of Native Americans. Okay. And how is it that you came to write a book about Clyde Warrior? Well, when I first came over, when, when I first came into Oklahoma, I wanted to study Native American history because I did American studies as an undergraduate and as, as a, a master's level. And we covered a whole range of different ethnicities and histories as part of that. But American Indians were always left out. And I always found that odd considering they were the original people of the continent. So like, I knew I wanted to study American Indian history, but I didn't really know what about American Indian history I wanted to to study. Uh, I was lucky enough to um, find myself under the, the tutelage of, a, of a, a Warren Metcalf, who ended up being my dissertation advisor. And <clears throat> he gave me a load, of, a, a, a list of books on contemporary or well, 20th century U.S. history. And as I started to read those books, Clyde Warrior, when we got to the 50s and 60s and the, the American Indian movement, which most people are familiar with at least to some degree of uh, in terms of American Indian activism. Um, Clyde Warrior's name kept popping up in these books uh, where people would say various authors and historians and sociologists would describe him as being important and significant, and yet no one had ever written about him. And so I thought, well, uh, that's the sort of type of person I am. But, well, if he's so important and he's so significant, why hasn't anyone written about him? And so I decided... Well, I will, if no one else has. And that, <laughs> that's what started me on the, you know, <laughs> that's what started me on the journey. <laughs> so it started off as a, a master's thesis and then a doctoral dissertation and then the book. So it was a, I think in total, it, from from beginning idea until the book itself, uh, probably nine years of, of study and research. Wow. And one of the things that uh, I noticed in your uh, bibliography was that it wasn't just a matter of looking at uh, Clyde Warrior's writings and, and the context of the history, but you interviewed a lot of people who knew him, uh, people who worked alongside of him, with him, people who participated in uh, various uh, organizations that he became an activist in. So it really is not, not just a, a biography of him based upon the historical record, but also uh, you know, you've met with these people who knew him when he was 
a, uh, you know, a, a, a vibrant, active human being. Yeah, and it sort of that, that um, it made it a much. It kept me much more honest in my writing. I think that as well as having those people, um, those you know, them, them trusting me with those stories, and at first it allowed me to see Clyde as much more in a much more three dimensional manner, rather than just reading him from pages and reading his own writing. I'd have to speak to people who knew him and people who loved him, and you know, including family members, um, and it really made my writing much more honest in that I knew once the book is finished, it's not just there as an historical record and it's not just there to be read and discussed by other historians, but it was also going to be read and reviewed by those people who had trusted me with those stories. And you know, his family members got to read it before I finished the book before actually, before the book was actually published they they became part of the sort of the production process, and be, you know I would go to them and say I want you to to approve this before it goes out to the general public, because I don't want anything out there that you know you you don't approve of because you know because you trusted me with these stories, and so, and but it did it really it, it helped. Without those stories, it would have been a completely you know uh, a completely different book entirely. Now, when you begin the book, you don't begin by talking about Clyde Warrior. You begin by talking about the uh, background of his tribe. And as you make it clear throughout the book, it's very important to understand that background, to understand who Clyde Warrior is and why he did the things that he did. And I was wondering if you could explain to us a bit about his tribe and, and sort of the context of the American uh, Indian, uh, for lack of a better word, activist community, prior to the 1950s. Yes, certainly. And and again, that's one of the things that struck me as I was, you know, when I first started encountering his name, uh, it, oftentimes the <clears throat> the description that would lead into a discussion of him was that he was traditionally raised Ponca Indian. And really that, you, you, there, would no, there would be no further explanation of what that meant. So, you know, it's then left up to the reader to imagine what exactly a traditionally raised Ponga Indian is, or how you know what that means in terms of identity or culture or or heritage or history. And so, of course, it was important to start with the history of his of his nation because that then gives you know if you're going to talk about who he was and and how much it was important to him to be a you know traditionally raised or culturally immersed. Um, Ponca Indian, then you need to really understand at least a basic framework of what being a Ponca Indian meant, not just in the present time, but also in the past. And that included, you know, that includes sort of encounters with European settlement and encroachment and how they ended up coming from Nebraska to Oklahoma and the trouble and turmoil that was involved in that process. Uh, <coughs> excuse me was part of the process with the Ponca specifically were because of the particular circumstances, Congress in 1800, in the 1880s, approved funding for the Ponca to buy the land to their reservation as such. And there's an argument as to whether or not the reservation exists in Oklahoma. Um, you know, the terminology changed and people talk about agencies rather than reservations. And so on a technical legal term, there are no reservations in Oklahoma, but there are, you know, tribal communities in Oklahoma. Uh, and 
to the Budapanka, we give them money by the federal government, or in exchange for the land they lost in Nebraska when they were forcibly moved into, well, what was then Indian territory, Congress approved money for them to actually physically purchase the land upon which they sat. And then years later, when the allotment process started, which was the federal government went through a process of, of literally cutting up the reservations into individual allotted land ownerships, and the Ponca refused because the Ponca said, we actually physically own this land. It's not yours to do this with. And the government said, well, we're going to do it anyway. And this sort of fostered a, a sense of not resentment as much, but a, a cultural and political resilience against um, the processes of Americanization that the federal government kept trying to push on onto you know, indigenous peoples. And so this is sort of the framework upon which you know, within which Warrior himself was raised. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as he says himself, that you know, even as late as 1924, which is when the federal government bestowed citizenship on American Indians, and you know, not, all Indian, not all Native people wanted citizenship, there were still soldiers um, stationed on the Ponca territory in, in White Eagle, which is the Ponca as an agency, I suppose, rather than reservation. And so you know, the, the, this, this, this was all... We tend to think of these things as ancient history, but the people who are living, uh, you know, it's recent history because most of, most, even today, most of the people living in these reservations or agencies have grandparents alive who, or great-grandparents who were physically present in these moments. And so, you know, he was raised in the late 1930s, so he's only a generation behind sort of soldiers being there, his parents and his grandparents, physically you know, experienced these these situations. And so, yeah, they're a very culturally entrenched pe- uh, community, the Ponca, even now. And, and a lot of it comes from from this, you know, forced removal and other, other you know, the situations where they were forcibly forced, you know, to to allot their land, even though they owned the land that they were, they were on. You described that. And that's that just it... a political... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go on. I was going to say. You, I was going to say and that's really just. <laughs> I was going to say that you, you described the, the 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 sort of the political and economic status as well, but you also have this fascinating discussion of the cultural uh, uh, undermining of, of of Ponca culture and Native American culture as well, and you have this very relevant discussion of the dances. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit yeah. about the Huthuska Society and what was happening there. Uh, in terms of the 1920s and the 1930s, because that comes to play a, a very large role and arguably is the point at which Clyde Warrior really begins to assert himself culturally on the public stage for the first time. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the, the culture and the politics are sort of they're, they're tied together rather than separated, but it's, it's, often, you, you, it's often difficult to sort of put them in the same conversation, so we do end up being common separated. But although processes I've just described of the forcible allotment and the forcible removal, it had, and this is what I think a lot of people don't understand or don't really, you know, not so much understand us, don't really ever sort of follow through. When we think of thought processes and we know about, most of us have at least a basic knowledge of things like the Trail of Tears and what have you. And we tend to just think of it as, okay, well, the people will move from here to there. And we don't think about the ramifications of that in terms of community, 
or you know the sheer of actually packing up an entire community and moving them and rebuilding cultures or maintaining culture and <clears throat> a lot of the practices of the punk practiced in, in, in Nebraska uh, they were hard to maintain once they were in Oklahoma it's a completely different environment the you know geographic cultural the soil even is different the the etc so trying to rebuild yourself um after you've been forced to move from one place to another it was it was hard to do and and so once the rest place or once they were placed in an agency things like hunting for yourself you know stopped became illegal and so a lot of this you know, the allotment process and the the, the reservation era also i'll say coincided but also at the same time as the federal government made many of the just the very essence of being a, a Native American illegal. You know, dances were made illegal. Cultural uh, religion was made illegal. Songs, uh, boarding schools were trying to, you know, see, were trying to stop the languages being spoken. So the very essence of who these communities or who these tribes were was deemed illegal by the federal government and suppressed as in as many ways as it possibly could. And so this then sees the culture start to be, you know, goes underground, so to speak, where if you're looking at it from the outside, <clears throat> you no longer see these dances and you no longer see these, these ceremonies taking place, but they're being hidden from sight and they're being kept within families. And that's what happened with a lot of the songs and dances that, um, with the Ponca. Now, after there was a lot of, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt authorized, um, religious leaders to really go you know, to roll out uh, missionization of, of American Indians again at the start of the 20th century. And so there was a lot of pressure to, to forego what we think of as traditional, you know, religious practices and become Christian. And that in itself then had a, a you know, a, a negative impact on culture and cultural practices. And so by, by the end of world war one, an awful lot of Ponca people have become Christianized. The the Native American church was started by two Ponca, um, two Ponca men, which was sort of an incorporatization of, of slight traditional practices within a Christian setting. And then, um, a lot, as I say, that so a lot of the dances and the ceremonies um, became dormant because with the Halushka, and it's it's a th, but it's pronounced you know Helushka as an L. Although there are several other variations of pronunciation depending on which clan you you speak to within the Ponca. Um, because that was a warrior society, and because the reservation era or the, the the agency era had made warrior practices illegal, there was no way for young men to enter the warrior societies, and so these warrior societies became dormant. And it was only after World War II. I mean, there was still some revitalization of warrior practices in World War One, but it was most common in World War Two that as young Native American men came home from the war, many of these na their nations started to revive the warrior ceremonies and warrior societies as a way of honoring them because they had. This was a new generation who finally earned the right to be classified as warriors within the traditional way of, of, of practice.
And so that's, and this is where a lot of the dances and, and the songs were tied to. So he, even though he didn't serve, he was too young to, you know, he was only a child during World War II. His uncle was a, was a Marine in the Pacific. And when he came back, he sought the rights from those few, I think it was 16 elders who were original members of the Helushka when it had stopped practicing in the early 1900s. And he went and sought the right, his uncle Sylvester sought the right to revive the society, you know, um, in the 1950s. And he was given the right to do so. And Warrior was considered such a skilled dancer that he was, he was invited as part of the ceremony, even though he wasn't a, 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 um, a warrior himself. Fascinating. And... Uh, part of it, the, the how he had, you know, and what I talk about in the book, I think it's in the first chapter as well, is his own history as a dancer started when he was a child mm-hmm. because he was raised by his grandparents and they were both fluent speakers. And they were, <clears throat> they were fluent speakers despite the fact they'd both been to boarding schools which had tried to eradicate their language. So you know that, that act of resistance in itself was they'd come back from boarding school and they were still maintain their language and they still spoke Ponca every single day. And so every day of his life, the first words he heard were Ponca. Mm-hmm. And as his, one of his cousins said, at that time in Ponca, you know, in, in the Ponca community, you didn't really see white people unless it was the insurance man or, or there was some business that you had in the city that, you know, 98% of your life would be other Ponca people or people from other neighboring, you know, communities like the Kaur or the Tonkawa and so on and so forth. And so his entire worldview was a Native American worldview, a Ponca worldview, because his entire, everything around him was, was Ponca people speaking Ponca language, you know, still maintaining those Ponca ceremonies, but secretly, so to speak. Um, and so he was raised speaking Ponca. His grandfather was one of those original members of the Helluska Society, and he was a drum keeper, and he was a drum maker, and so that was his life. Was he, he, this is so? This is how he made. You know, he he was raised in a very traditional way, which we, really we use the word traditional, but essentially he was raised in a very ponker way. You and know, you mentioned uh, uh, throughout the first part of the book is that he has a very uh, strong uh, and, and self assured sense of his identity. He, he doesn't really question his uh, punkiness or Indianness. Uh, in, in any way, and and how that is, uh, you you suggest as part of this of this uh, appeal that he has to uh, the people around him, which is that he's very self assured, he's very comfortable with his identity, and it seems to come from uh, this this very uh, this very immersive upbringing in his traditional culture. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, I think in one of his speeches, one of his articles later on, actually once he became an activist, and he was talking about the way that you know native people are often judged um, for you know and based on on issues like material poverty, you know, but they were never <clears throat> that's you know that's from our from our perspective we would look uh, as a, from a Western perspective we would look in these reservations and we would see material poverty and dismiss you know it, well obviously they're not performing to the potential that we judge, you know, in a Western world of what success is. But from his own framework, so he says he was born poor, he was raised poor, you know, materially. 
But in a cultural manner, he was the richest person alive because his grandparents, you know, spoke and sang to him every day. He was immersed in the drum making process and the process of making the drum. Um, you know, that's like a week long process just to make one drum as you sort of, you, you, you're skinning the cow and then you, you, you know, you, 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 you're scraping the fur off and you, you're tanning the hide and you're making sure it doesn't dry too quickly and it's got to be stretched slowly and so on and so forth. The whole process takes a week just to make a drum. Um, and so this was sort of how he and his, his, his siblings and his cousins were raised. And so, yeah, it gave him very much confidence that he had as a child because he was also, until I think he said it was seventh or eighth grade, it was the first time he went to a, you know, he was he was sent to a local sort of uh, public school. And that was the first time that any, he really had any challenge to his identity. So those entirely, those first formative years, um, it was all about being punker. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of other people that he saw were his grandparents' friends who would be either other punker elders or they would be elders or singers or dancers from other communities. And so... His was a, a completely, you know, rich cultural way of life. And so by the time he got to the stage where Western people were sort of trying to impose, you know, our sort of arbitrary system judgment upon him, he was already completely, you know, there's no way, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you people can be what you want, but I'm Ponka and you're not going to make me ever be sorry for being Ponka. And he and he kept that going through his life, and yeah, and it was so. Yeah, I think it was absolutely central to who he was that that upbringing, you know, and that sort of that cultural immersion, or that absolute sort of, you know, and it's very rare at that point in time because there were so many external influences, boarding schools, um, you know, federal policies of of allotment and terminations. Well, allotments had stopped, but in the 1950s, the federal government started relocation and termination policies in which relocation was to try and force or to try and entice young families off reservations or out of communities into the cities. You know, it was all about assimilation, trying to assimilate them into the, the, the into, you know, a, a make Americanization. Mm-hmm. And so every which way that American Indians looked, they were, there was an assault on their culture or there was challenges, or they were being told persistently, you should not be Indian anymore. You need to be American. Your way of life is dead. Your way of life is past. You, you know, it's useless. And then here was he. He said, well, I was raised in this way of life. And I, this way of life is the only way of life I knew till I was 10 years old. And there's nothing wrong with this way of life because it's maybe who I am. And so, yeah, it, you know, there was no way to, to undermine that confidence or of who he was culturally or you know, to affect the identity he was and that did make his activism sort of it really defined his his activism and there, his political views very much there, there, there are two other elements uh from this point of his life that i think that you described that are seem to me to be very relevant and the first is his participation in the dance competitions which both gives him a chance to excel and and and, and succeed in this area of his cultural strength. And you also described uh-huh. this fascinating group of, of which I was not really aware, which were the hobbyists in which you have this group of white people who are passionate and supportive of this culture. And you mentioned that they're as a group, they're, they're controversial among the native American community at that time, but they do also serve 
as a another that that, that, that uh, Clyde embraces them. Uh, that warrior embraces yeah. them. He, he he's he's comfortable with that, and and he finds that that serves as a, another form of, of reinforcement of his of his sense of his the, the worth of his of his identity as a punk. Yeah, and, and it's. It, with this, with the, with, to talk about the competitions first, is that you know many people. And this is one of the again the value of of being able to speak to people who knew him. In the I knew I knew he, I knew he was a dancer, and I knew he competed, and I knew he won contests. But I'd speak to people who who you know, they, they, I mean he died in 1968, so they've not they've not seen him or spoken to him. For forty something years, and the minute I mentioned, you know, well, what can you tell me about? Can you remember his dancing? The faces would light up, um, and, and several people described it that you know he was such a fluid dancer, he was almost balletic. I don't know if that's where I pronounce it, uh, but it was, always, it was always like ballet that he was so graceful in the arena. And again, you know, that that sort of speaks to the way he was raised, but he had this natural talent as well. And with the hobbyists. One of the, the the ways his grandparents made money was by selling drums to tourists, and so he was sort of aware of them vaguely as a child. Um, he became, he became uh, there was a trader who used to deal with the punker a lot. Who, who well, as he was a young man, offered to take him out to California to, you know, um, to. One of his, um, the trader was going out there to, to buy and sell Indian crafts, so to speak, to uh, the hobbyists and such. And this is how he met some of the hobbyists. And the the hobbyist tradition, you know, it, it comes from the Boy Scout movement, in which, um, again, it goes back to Theodore Roosevelt. So, you know, Roosevelt was convinced that, that uh, you know, um, American men were becoming weakened by urbanization, that, that you know, <clears throat> The, 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 he, was, he was a great you know, exponent of the great outdoors. Now, he didn't start the Boy Scout movement, but you know, it ties into that. And the, the early Boy Scout movement very much followed the, you know, the outdoor woodsman or the Indian way of life were the ways you know, the kids learned. And I believe that a, pass, a rite of passage for Boy Scouts in the early 20th century was an Indian ceremony. And in those days, it always used to be Excuse me. It always used to be a, a Sioux ceremony. They would, they would, you know, they would have a, a whether it be real or not, a, a Lakota sort of holy man come out and, and perform ceremonies for them, and this would be their rite of passage. And so when when Warrior encountered these hobbyists, they were all following the same standard path of, of you know dancing. You know, because you've got the, the Northern Plains, and. Then they met Warrior, who knew all these songs, and he was happily. Um, again, one of the descriptions of him is that uh, he was the only person they ever met who would whistle Indian songs just when they were driving down the street. Mm-hmm. You know, so, it, so this, everything about him was quintessentially native. You know, every part of his culture was, was native. You know, we whistle pop songs as we go along, but as Clyde Warrior used to whistle you know, punker songs. And so they gradually started to introduce them to a whole new realm of music that they'd never heard before. And upon the Northern Plains music is is very different from Southern Plains music. 
And so the punk of Southern Plains music was a whole, you know, it was something entirely new for them. And they became <clears throat> very faithfully, you know, attached to punker songs and punk and music and they became very well and for a while many of them became part of the punk community in some ways you know, they were accepted by the, the community at large and so it became this really yeah this really somewhat unusual relationship but it, it was a lasting friendship of of you know deep respect mm -hmm. did it also play a role in sharpening his identity as an indian as opposed to just a punka With the the reason why I ask is because it is when you describe all of these events that he goes to, like he goes to Gallup, he goes to California. He's, he's very yeah. well traveled for 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 the time, and he experiences not just his culture, the Ponca culture, but he experiences the Navajo culture or the and the Sioux culture and all these other cultures, uh -huh. and, and it seems to give him a sense of of Indianness that is sort of pan tribal. Well, yes and no, in that he, one of the things he argued against, he argued vehemently against was this idea of the being a pan-Indian identity. Um, and uh, he, so he, he went to all of these places, and again, a lot of that was, a lot of that was largely down to his grandparents, that um, they would travel, and they would, you know, they, they would travel to Gallup with, a, with, with Kiowa, um, with a few Kiowa friends. And so he, he became exposed to all these different native cultures. And so it gave him a much more, a much richer understanding of what indigenous history of, of, of America and the continent. But it also entrenched in him the understanding of how unique each culture was. So, no, he, one of the things that people said about him is he had this almost um, photographic memory for me for songs, and so he could sing. Um, after a few, a few, after hearing it a few times, he could sing punk songs, uh, obviously, but then he could also sing, you know, Lakota songs or Navajo songs or Apache songs, just just a couple of listens. But he'd also he would be able to discern nuances in the songs that other people would miss. Um, uh, but he was also very much vehemently against the idea of, of there being a single Indian culture, largely because he was so exposed to these different cultures and these different, you know, at such an early age that it it, it reinforces identity more and more. It reinforces identity of who he was as Ponca, but what role the Ponca played in the wider sense of Indianness, rather than making him more Indian. Does that make sense? It, it does, and, and that actually. Uh uh, it's probably a good point now to, to talk a bit about these ideas that he develops during this period, the 1950s and early 1960s, as he starts to become, uh, as he's uh, going to high school, going to college, he's uh, becoming more engaged. And, and you see, at, at a fairly early point, he's beginning to formulate a, a lot of these ideas that, that he comes to become such a powerful advocate for. And I was wondering if you could speak to some of those. Uh, yeah, um, part of it again came from the, he was becoming more politically aware of, I mean, he, he seems to have been quite well read um, for, <clears throat> but I, I suppose that from what I understand of the 60s, that a lot of teenagers were 
quite well read in those days. Um, and he was also a Bob Dylan fan, apparently. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> he can't really be anything but politically aware if you're going to be a Bob Dylan fan in the 1960s. But a lot of his political so he had this awareness of politics and the, you know the general political scene of the 1950s in the world and the Cold War as it was going on at the time, but also <clears throat> how that affected native communities as well. And part of that comes back down to his dancing. You know that he would go to powwows and diff- and the powwow circuit was a lot different back then. And that now it's a you know it's this huge circuit, and some dancers can earn a lot of money on the powwow circuit, but in those days, it was this, these are the days before, you know, many, many of the powwows uh, posted cash for prizes, so it was really just about the prestige. Um, <clears throat> and so a lot of these reservations, and so we visited these reservations, and what constantly was brought home is how the poverty, you know, the, there's these cultural differences and very, you know, some unique languages and unique histories, um, even among this sort of, if you want relentless wave of American expansion, even with, you know, we know American history is this sort of, it's painted as this uniform sort of history, but for each individual native nation, there's a completely different individual history within that uniformity. And so he would recognize that, but at the same time, he would see that the common denominator everywhere was poverty and, you know, these cultural fragmentation and you know, these pressure to, to sort of become Americanized and to sort of leave the identity behind because it's, you know, it's pushed as this, this old way. And so he, he sort of, he's got this educate, you know, he's got this knowledge of the world, the outside world and the cold war and, and, you know, the 1960s and the civil rights movement. But at the same time, He's seen what happens, what's happening in his own community and other communities because of his, his movements on the dance circuit, and he 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 he, he was translating the two, mm-hmm. you know. So he was interpreting, well, this is in the outside world, and this is what the outside world is doing to our world. But you make it clear in your book that he is not simply responding to these trends. You describe, for example, how his uh, adoption of the Red Power slogan in uh, the fall of 1966 is practically contiguous with the invention of the Black Power slogan by Stokely Carmichael. And that is, you know, nearly a decade after he's really begun this uh, this very assertive uh, engagement of his identity, going back to uh, his time at Cameron State when he started college and he be- he uh, joins the Atana Indian Club and he begins to very early on, uh, it, uh, adopt this uh, assertive sense of that how Indians should take charge of their own destiny and should not allow the federal government to be as assertive as they once as they traditionally had been. Yeah, and again, that's that, it's that reflection of seeing the poverty in the you know in in these tribal communities as he's as he's going around and he knows that. You know the com- the message the the common the common message that's being put out to to American Indians at that time, and we still hear the same message now, is that well, it's your own fault. You know the reason that for this poverty and the reason for this desolation in your communities is because you're not good enough and you don't do well enough and you're too lazy and so on and so forth. And he knew himself that that was not right, and because of that cultural certainty he had it within himself. 
you know, he didn't allow that that relentless sort of push to 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 blame American Indians for their plight. You know, it becomes internalized a lot of times. You know, in the most common sense, even so, to today, it still becomes internalized. But he refused to internalize it. So if he couldn't internalize it, then it started to be pushed back on. And when he was in those college situations, he saw a lot of other native students who were internalizing these messages and these blame. And so he became sort of controversial even within the native, the native student community because um, he was saying, no, we can't let them keep blaming us because this isn't our fault. Mm-hmm. And and so you know it sort of it, as much as it was the the politically of the time it was also seeing so many other native people sort of allowing themselves not so much allowing themselves but you know internalizing these, these this this outside pressure to be blamed or to blame themselves that that sort of made him you know that that sort of stirred his his passions as much as as, as his own culture. You, you describe that. Uh, conference that he attends in Chicago and how you he was struck by the difference between the uh, sort of the closed sessions where they would come together to discuss issues and then this general session where you had this BIA uh, personnel supervising and the message that 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 the uh, that the leadership at the conference was giving was much more passive and, and not quite as, uh, as assertive as as uh, it had been in the closed sessions. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's a perfect example. The, the behind closed doors, when there were the Declaration of, of, of Indian Purpose, which comes out uh, of that set of, of those sessions, is itself quite assertive. You know, it says that, and, and part of it was 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 created as a challenge to the incoming, you know, JFK. He was. He'd ran on this campaign of a new frontier. And so the native leaders were saying, well, if he's going to have a new frontier for America, there needs to be a new frontier for American Indians as well. And so the the Declaration of Indian Purpose is quite assertive. But yeah, and those sessions were behind closed doors. But in the open sessions, and this is, if you you think back, this was in this whole Chicago conference, was occurred at a time when termination was still a federal sort of policy. And the termination, to explain it a little bit better, was the federal government was looking for ways to get out of, as they called it, the Indian problem. Um, you know, this federal trust relationship where in exchange for the treaty, you know, all the land that had been taken and in exchange for everything else, <clears throat> you know, the federal government is obligated to uphold the treaties that it signed with tribes because treaties are, are legal obligations. Well, the federal government said, well, if we can terminate this trust relationship, uh, we won't have to honor the treaties anymore because the, you know, they will agree that the relationship is over. And so many tribes will be you know, places like Oregon and California and so, you know, some states were, were set out as we're going to terminate this relationship with those tribes. And so in the open forum, where you've got these BIA leaders and federal government officials sitting there, many of the tribal leaders didn't want to be seen to be antagonizing the federal government in case they suddenly found that their nation was the next to be to be to be targeted for termination. But then for Warrior and the other youngsters who, who sort of ended up forming the National Indian Youth Council, this struck them as the most blatant form of cowardice they could see. 
you know, and it struck them as very much, you know, it's probably what we think of as politics. You know, it's very much the way, the way politics is played. I think, you know, for better or worse, in in any forum, but they were struck by, you know, well, in the in the in the behind closed doors, you're saying this, this, and this, and then you go out there and you don't have the courage to their face. You know, you're okay as a part of it, saying this as part of a collective, but you don't have the courage to stand there and say it. Well, that as a betrayal, and a betrayal of ancestors, a betrayal of. of current generations and a betrayal of future generations. And up to this, you know, they started to stand up and speak up themselves. But every time they did, they were told to shut up and sit down. You know, you're too young. You don't know what you're talking about. You've got no experience. You're probably communists. And so they, you know, they started to have their own meetings behind closed doors. And that's where the National Indian Youth Council, National Indian Youth Council came from. Um, Could you explain that? In addition to that... Could you, could you explain a bit the role of the National Indian Youth Council then within the larger, uh, not just civil rights movement, but, but Native American political uh, uh, organizations of the 1960s? I mean, was it, a, was it just sort of a fringe group or did it uh, really take center stage early on? And, and, and how did it uh, present itself to uh, the Native American community and the country as a whole? It started off really as a, as a, they described it as a movement. And, but, but even so, there were, there were, even at the beginning, they were, they wanted to set up, but they needed to, they wanted to maintain integrity. They did, they, they, they wanted to ensure that they didn't fall down the same, what they saw as the same route of ultimate betrayal that they were seeing, you know, tribal leaders, you know, you know performing at the, at the, at the, um, at the Chicago conference. And part of that, I can just go back to that for a second. Part of what the National Indian Youth Council, I think, gets portrayed as a rebellion against their elders. But what they were so concerned about is they saw their elders, people like Warriors' grandparents, you know, the cult of the people who held the culture for Warrior and, the, and other members of the NIYC, the National Indian Youth Council, they were the true leaders of their communities. And these political leaders who were, you know, up there performing in front of the BIA and so on and so forth, they were either politically elected or politically appointed. And so for many, they, they, you know, they didn't, they, they were pushing, they, this poli- the politics was pushing aside the cultural, you know, the people who, all, who knew the culture and the heritage and the language. And to Warrior and others, they were the real leaders and the people who really should have been listened to. And so within the National Indian Youth Council, they wanted to tap into that knowledge and that leadership and find a way to bring that leadership into the present time rather than sort of, you know, the political, the, just become, for tribes or nations to become just political, you know, organizations. And so... How does, how does Clyde Warrior himself become a prominent figure within this movement and and how has he become a a prominent figure nationally because you mentioned in the book that by the mid-1960s he's being called to speak before congress he's being called to speak before all these presidential commissions it it seems that and and this is a point where he's still in his mid-20s but he's already this this very prominent figure how does that come to pass And, and 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 what were the qualities that he had that that made him such a national figure 
I think for that was part of the beauty of the National Indian News Council. For the first couple of years, they really just they started to tour. Um, you know, there were only about there were roughly about three thousand um, American Indian students in university in the entire country in 1960, 61. Um, it was a very small number, but they were spread uh, you know, right across the nation. And each, each of these, you know, the, the, the student organizations, they these, these, you know, the same as the Anaha Club or the Sequoia Club in, in Cameron and um, the University of Oklahoma. And so for the first couple of years, the National Indian New Council was just going, you know, was just, Visiting these their annual youth conferences and talking and trying to build up, um, you know, membership and support. There was the workshop on American Indian affairs that happened in Boulder, Colorado. Every summer they were they were they were very much a part of that and very much made that place their own for a, for a, for a few years. And within the within the the workshops on American Indian affairs, it was, excuse me, it was run by. Um, Darcy McNichol. And Darcy McNichol was also one of the founding members of the National Congress of American Indians. And so the National Indian Youth Council found themselves sort of playing politics with the National Congress of American Indians to a certain degree. And so that, because the National Congress of American Indians had been the idea originally of John Collier, who was Bureau of India, who was Commissioner of Indian Affairs up until 1930. No, until 1945. Um, no, there was a certain cachet with the National Congress of American Indians. They already had connections with the broader, polit- you know, the the more p- traditional political scene as we would think, you know, with uh, Washington D.C. and what have you. And so, the National Indian Youth Council sort of used that as a way in. But because they were young and they were outspoken and they were not following traditional methods. They started to 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 attract the attention of 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 politicians, of the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, and uh, um, you know education leaders, and they focused a lot on education as well, and education reform. So they wanted to, they really wanted to change how American Indians were were being educated, and so <clears throat> their ideas um, were were such that they sort of forced people to listen to them, and again, Warrior. Um, many people said that he just had this force of personality where no matter how many people were in the room, he was one of those people that when he walked into a room, everybody sort of turned and looked. He had that sort of magnetic personality where everybody was drawn to him. And so even though at the very, in the very initial meetings of the National Indian Youth Council, he was nominating, he was pushing everybody else to the forefront. And he was very much unsure of of having a, an organized a national organization was the best way to go he was very much you know against the idea or uncertain in the original very early meetings of of well what's this going to become what's this organization going to become are we just going to use it to feather our own nests or are we actually going to try and make change and the idea of an actual structural organization that mirrored other organizations didn't really appeal to him at the beginning. And so he pushed other people into positions of power and said, I, you know, I'm just going to speak, but I don't want, and, and so he sort of he evolved into a leadership. As he said himself later on, you know, in, in native communities, 
And this was part of the distrust of the political leadership as well. In native communities, traditionally, you didn't appoint yourself. You know, the community chose you from within. You know, leadership was something that the community saw and the community bestowed leadership upon people rather than people appoint themselves as leaders or, you know, nominate themselves for leadership roles. And so that's sort of, again, it sounds sort of cliche, but it very much, again, mirrors his cultural upbringing and that he was pushed into this leadership role rather than try to assert himself. He very, he never once ever accepted that, that, that he was a leader. You know, he would, he was always sort of reject that term, uh, 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 upon himself, but he was, you know, he was a leader, but he didn't ever really think of himself as such. He, and he also was not just a leader during this period, but he's also a very prominent, uh, uh, publicist, for lack of a better word, he's uh, he, he has he's on the radio. He's publishing articles. Sometimes it's just uh, within, say, small uh, community sheets. But he's do- writing as well, and he's getting his word out that way. He's getting his message out that way as well. Yeah, he was very much, a, a, I suppose, a philosopher as well as as an activist. Um, and he was always thinking and 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 taking ideas and trying to to build on them and, 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 and to think of ways that, that, you know, native people could be uplifted. And, and that was always sort of at the central, everything was about how native people, whether as in, as, as distinct communities or as a whole could be uplifted and put themselves in a position of true self-determination and true self-control. But it wasn't just, so that was very much sort of, it wasn't just theory, though, because uh, you described that uh, after he graduates and he uh, for, from college, he begins to get involved in the Cherokee educational system, and he begins doing research on these yeah. problems and 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 trying to devise solutions from that experience rather than just from some sort of utopian ideal. Oh no! Yeah, he very much applied himself to to finding solutions and to. Yeah, uh, philosopher, activist, um, you know, I don't think of the word. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, he, he, he very much has immersed himself in the nuts and bolts of trying to make these things happen. Yeah, so, I mean, again, that's why he didn't really think of himself as much as a, as a leader, as, as, you know, well, everybody needs to pitch in together. And again, it's that sense of community and communal, you know, everybody works for the greater good rather than working for themselves, was very much a part of how he was raised. And so, you know, it was a natural extension of who he was that he never thought of himself. Um, he never put himself first. It was always for the greater good of, of um, you know, American Indians. And yet that... and that's something... Um, Go ahead. As I was say, that's something Mel Tom said. Uh, after Clyde died, you know, he said that one. He said we, we've 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 you know our, we've, our leader has left us, and and you think that that's a very much a, in its in and of itself a statement because going back to the beginning of National Indian Youth Council, it was Mel Tom that Warrior said should be the pre, you know should be the leader, and yet here less than a decade later, Mel Tom was saying to him he is our leader, but he also said within that same statement that this is a guy who would never have accepted a penny for himself if he knew all the native people were still poor. Mm-hmm. And yet that 
those roles that he assumed, the, the roles not just in the public sphere, but he was also uh, a husband and a father, that, that took a real toll on him because he died at such a, a tragically young age. He, he died before he even turned 30 years old. Yeah. And uh, his, his widow um, is still convinced. And it's, and it's not a hard... It's not a hard thing to actually to, to buy into, not to buy into, but to, to, to accept maybe a reality is that, you know, that <clears throat> he had health issues that were a lot, you know, people always put it down to the fact he drank and he, you know, but, you know, drinking was a way of life. You know, there were a lot of people um, in that era, most political deals were done over, you know, in smoky back rooms over, over, you know, bottles of whiskey and so on. So it's not as if, you know, I think people make a lot of his, his alcoholism in certain degree because he's Native American and he can just fit that stereotype. That's not denying that he did drink. But his wife, also, his widow also said, you know, given with the Ponca are, and given that the Ponca water has been polluted for generations by the oil refinery in Ponca City, and the air around there, you can't really, you know, you can't really breathe without breathing in the oil. Um, and there is a lot of and <clears throat> other related forms of illness in the pumpkin. Then there is a possibility that there were other things, there were other overriding health issues that contributed to his early death, but they never really got investigated. <clears throat> but at the same time, there was, there was, you know, he, he, he was spread extremely thin and that he was a, uh, uh, an activist, a leader, uh, uh, a student, a father, a son, a researcher, you know, <laughs> a <laughs> diplomat, I suppose, if you will, to to the federal government. So he he, he was he was constantly on the move. What would you say uh, is his legacy to uh, not just uh, the Native American? Uh, you know, community, but to uh, American history as a whole. To American history as a whole, he forces us. I think he forces us to rethink American Indian history for one. In the, in the, as I say, as I said earlier, from, from the traditional history still talks about the civil rights era, um, and American Indians are, are largely absent, and when they. When they do come under discussion, it's normally um, that the Red Power era itself began in 1969 with the occupation of Alcatraz and then ended in 1975 after um, the siege at Wounded Knee and the, the court cases that followed. And yeah, here we have someone who sort of set a ball rolling a whole decade earlier uh, and actually coined the, the term Red Power and created a lot of the ideologies of, of of what Reb Howell meant. And at the same time, we're connected with the outside world in ways that people still don't seem to understand American Indians as being. You know, and within American history itself, it gives, it, this proves, um, here in, you know, in 1890 after Wounded Knee, that they weren't passive, um, people, you know, sort of clinging to a past that no longer existed, that these cultures 
And these identities and these histories are still being played out now. They still exist and they still thrive. And Clyde Warrior's example of that at the 1950s is where many people say American Indian nations were probably at their weakest because of termination. And yet you had youngsters who like, like Clyde Warrior pushing through and fighting back. Um, but there was also an awareness that you know, he, he deliberately kept the American Indian um, rights movement away from the civil rights movement because he was he was politically astute enough that he, he he knew that if they allowed themselves to become co-opted with the wider social movements of the time, that they would be subsumed by the civil rights movement. Well, you, you point know, out in your book because that, that the native that the red power movement was had a very uh, different set of needs than the black power movement. That that for African Americans there was yeah, in yeah. part this grasping of, of of this of this heritage that they had really put behind them, and and, and Clyde Warrior recognized that the Native Americans already had that they that they needed to they, they were they were kind of at a, at a different stage. Yeah. And, but there was a lot of pressure as well within people to say, well, we just need to join up with the civil rights movement because they're getting all the newspaper and they're getting all the attention. And he kept on pushing back and saying, but the newspaper and the attention is not enough. You know, the attention is not enough to sacrifice what we're actually fighting for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think what also one of his legacies as well is that since you know, he died in 1968, and since then, we've had self-determination in 1975, in which you know, American Indian nations were given the right to self-govern. Or not given the right, but the, you know, the, the, the federal government created space where, to recognize American Indians as sovereign nations and, and, and you know, established this space of self-governance. But even within this space of self-governance since 1975, many of the issues that Clyde Warrior was calling out and fighting against still exist. And so, you know, sixty years later, his much of his much of his words and much of his his arguments are still as relevant today as they were then. Mm-hmm. Which tells us that you know we sort of congratulate ourselves to a certain degree, and we've been more open and accepting than we're not. We don't treat Indians the way we used to, but a lot of that is superficial, and in many ways, we still treat them exactly the same way we did sixty years ago, which. It's exactly the way we treated them 60 years before that. Uh, we've just sort of changed the way we do it slightly. And so there's a lot of lessons to be learned in there as well. Of the, 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 you know, his words then reflect on us still now. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I've actually just put... <coughs> a, a, um, I've all of his essays and his notes from, from those uh, student research. So that's actually with the OU Press at the minute, the, the, the evaluating whether, you know, I'm hoping that that will come out as a book. But the, the, the OU Press is currently evaluating that right now. Um, apart from that, my, my next research project is I'm working on transnational activism from the crosses borders. So I'm looking at it, and it comes from a Clyde. It comes from a research on Clyde Warriors. That like he was a lot of the people he connected with are what we are First Nations, Canadian First Nations activists, and you know it, it's Indigenous people in the United States, Indigenous people in Canada, who existed 
long before the United States or Canada did, but now we have them completely categorically separated by a border that we imposed upon them. And a lot of their activism transcends this border and there are still connections they make with each other and have made with each other that sort of undercut what the border means. And so that's what I'm working on now is putting together, you know, uh, 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 analyzing these, 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 move, these movements where they collaborated across the border um, for a common cause, despite the fact they're fighting against or the, or the, the negotiating with completely different federal governments. Sounds like a fascinating project. Well, I'm, think- I, I'm, I'm fully enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, Professor Mackenzie Jones, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today about the life of Clyde Warrior. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much.